Now, the stories that we're talking about in this series, okay, these stories that we're unpacking throughout the course of the series, were not told to simply make you feel a certain thing, right? That's what we talked about last week. They weren't intended to just make you feel all the feels. They were intended to actually move you to live differently, to think about life differently, to approach God, to approach one another, to approach yourself, your own decisions in life differently, and these stories that we're looking at are called parables. Parables, the, uh, the Greek word that we talked about is, is actually a comparison of two things. It's a metaphor. It's a word picture. In fact, Jesus often taught in parables. He, he would say something to the effect of, okay, I, I see you're not getting it. So let me, let me put it for you this way. Or, or it's kind of like this. And he would teach in these parables, and again, it was in hopes to move you not just to emotion, but also to action. See, these parables were shared to not just move you to a certain kind of emotion, he wanted to get you to action. And so we, we hope that the parables that we talk about, the stories that we talk about, you know, we, we don't walk out of here with feel-good stories. We hope that our lives are transformed, at least that's what Jesus was hoping for. He didn't tell these stories so that you can feel good about the stories that he was telling you. He wanted to see life transformation, and that's what we're after here today. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at another one of these parables. Part of my voice, it's going already. I was belting out the song. Jeez, ah, so good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And uh, we, uh, today, we're going to pick it up from verse 31, and we're just looking at five verses. Last week, we looked at a bunch in, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we looked at the parable of the sower. This week, we are looking at um, uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to pick it up from verse 31. Um, we'll have the text up here on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you, we also have Bibles available in the back. Uh, welcome table. Feel free to grab one of those. As well, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version here. Um, it doesn't matter what version of the Bible you have. Just go ahead and open up to whatever Bible you have. Read along with us, and um, we'll take it to verse 35, picking up from verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. He, he being Jesus, he put another parable before them, them being the crowds, the masses, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. That a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast, depending on what translation you have, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let me just read that quotation one more time. That's actually found in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Jesus is, is reiterating this as sort of a fulfillment of a prophecy. He says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Folks, don't miss this. I want you to see that part of the reason why Jesus spoke in parables, why he taught in parables, why he, he came off more like the Riddler than anything else. Thank you, JJ. I love you, brother. Thank you. This is JJ, one of our sponsors. He is one of our mentors here. 
JJ's a rock star. Thank you. I don't want you to miss this. The reason why Jesus spoke in parables was to reveal the secrets, the mysteries, the hidden treasures of God. Part of the reason why Jesus taught in parables was to give us a unique window, a window that you wouldn't find anywhere else, only through these parables. He wanted to give us a unique window into the very heart of the God of the universe. I will utter the mysteries. I will utter what has been hidden, the hidden treasures since the foundation of the world. He's uncovering for us these hidden treasures. And right here in this passage, I want to identify three specific treasures that Jesus uncovers for us. And I believe that in the uncovering of these treasures, I hope by the end of our time, our lives might look just a little bit differently. Again, that our lives might move towards life change. Life change. And so the first is this. The first treasure that Jesus uncovers for us is the treasure of God's kingdom. The treasure of God's kingdom. Notice how he opens up this passage. He opens up this passage saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Does that sound familiar? The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. I want you to know that this wasn't the only time Jesus opened up a statement with these specific words. In fact, in just this single chapter, this one chapter, in Matthew chapter 13, he says the kingdom of heaven is like six different times. All throughout the Gospels, one of the things that Jesus taught on, spoke on the most in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels was, you take a guess, the kingdom of God. Wake up, church. Come on. Come on. I'm, I'm leading. I'm set, teeing it up real easy for you. That, it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was one of the things that Jesus spent the most time talking about. In fact, I want you to think about this. One of the first earliest announcements of Jesus was what? The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, right? The kingdom of God is here. One of the things that Jesus taught, remember how the disciples came to Jesus? If you, if you grew up in the church, the disciples came to Jesus and, and, and they said, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. What did he say? Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, God's kingdom. God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Taught them how to pray like this. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons, the greatest sermon to have ever been preached. Okay, that's coming a lot from me, a great preacher. I mean, one of the greatest sermons. I'm just kidding. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, that's, that stands on its own grounds. But in that sermon, notice what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, I, I like to think of it this way. It, it's like... I imagine if we were to take a poll of people that were the closest to Jesus during his time, right? And, and you pull them to the side and you said, hey, I don't know a whole lot about this Jesus. What's this Jesus all about? Tell me what this Jesus is all about. I have a sneaking suspicion that the people that were closest to Jesus would say something to the effect of, oh, Jesus, that's easy. He's about the kingdom. He's about God's kingdom. I imagine it would be like if you were, go to, if you were to go to the Apple headquarters and, and, and talk to some of the senior executives. Hey, tell me what Steve Jobs was like. What was he all about? What was Steve Jobs like? What was he all about? I imagine they would say something to the effect of, oh, Steve, he was all about innovation. Technological innovation. He wanted to innovate, innovate. Everything that he did in the company was about innovation. 
I imagine if we went to the, the headquarters of Chick-fil-A, the greatest fast food restaurant on the planet, if you went to Chick-fil-A and, and you went to the, the senior executives, the, the upper management, and you said, hey, tell us what Dan Cathy is like, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Tell, what is he all about? I would imagine they would say something to the effect of, oh, Dan, he is all about customer care, customer satisfaction. In fact, one year, he put a, a company-wide policy that in, in, as a response to thank you, he said the only thing you are allowed to say is, my pleasure. Let's be honest. How, how many of you just go out of your way to say thank you just so you can hear them say my pleasure, right? Like, so I, I, I kind of like it that you're, you're, you're here for my pleasure, like that you're here to serve me. Dan Cathy is all about customer care, customer satisfaction. If we were to pull the people that were closest to Jesus and ask them, what is Jesus all about? Without a doubt, they would say, Jesus, he's about God's kingdom. He's about God's kingdom. And that's why here at ACF, we want to be about God's kingdom. In fact, we have it embedded right into our vision statement. Some of you are sick and tired of hearing about it, but I'm going to say it again. ACF exists. We are here. ACF exists here to build God's kingdom. We exist to build God's kingdom here through a growing relationship with Jesus. We want to be about God's kingdom. You know, in uh, premarital counseling, that my wife and I do, you know, we often tell couples and, and um, you know, folks who are getting ready to get married, we say, hey, listen, if something is important to your partner, if something is important to your spouse, it has got to become important to you. It has to become important to you. You see, if, if the kingdom of God was so important to Jesus that he spoke on it time and time and time again, it has to become important to people within the church who follow this Jesus. It has to become important to us. But now here's the deal. How are we going to get our heads around believing that this is important when we don't really have a firm grasp on what it is? Now, I imagine there are some of us here, uh, particularly for those of us who may not have grown up in the church who are not familiar with, with Scripture, we might, we might think, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, I, I, it sounds good. I'm not really sure what that is, preacher. Tell me, like, kingdom of God, what is Jesus referring to? By the way, when, when the Bible refers to as the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, the two are synonymous. Uh, they, they're the same thing. And so I might interchange the two uh, during our time here. To, don't get confused. They're the same thing. The Bible refers to them as the same thing. But I want to give you a working definition here today. And I want to just teach just for a little bit. Come off of you know, my preaching self. But, and, and I want to teach a little bit here for just a few moments. I, I want to give us a working definition for the kingdom of God or God's kingdom. And here's, here's how I would put it. Very simply put, God's kingdom is the rule and reign of God. If you're taking notes, you ought to jot that down. God's kingdom is the rule and reign of God. It is the rule and reign of God. In other words, wherever God rules, wherever God reigns, wherever he holds authority, wherever he is, Lord, there is the kingdom of God. That's where the kingdom of God is. You know, I think a lot of us, uh, when we think about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, we think of heaven, right? Heaven, that's, that's God's kingdom. That's his domain, right? Like that's his, and we think to ourselves, you know, kingdom of God, heaven, that's partially true. That's partially true. I want you to think about this. What makes heaven heaven? I want you to think about this. What makes heaven heaven? Heaven is not heaven because it is the place where we go when we die. 
Heaven is not the place where we go. You know, it's, it's like a lot of people think of heaven as our final destination. And that, that's, that's about it. That's the last stop. Heaven. That's, that's where we're going. A lot of us uh, think of heaven as kind of as, as God's place of residence. Like that's, that's, where, that's where God's crib is. That's his zip code. That's, his, like, that's where he lives. Heaven is where he lives. That's, where, that's God's kingdom, right? Yes, all of that, again, is partially true. But friends, I want you to understand At the core of it, at its essence, what makes heaven heaven is that it is the ultimate place of God's dominion, his rule, his reign, and his authority. It's not that it's just the place where we go when we die. It's not the place where God resides. Yes, again, all of that is partially true. If you confess your, uh, bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus, yes, heaven is your final destination. If you have received the free gift of salvation, yes, heaven is your final destination. But what makes heaven heaven is that it is the ultimate place of God's rule and his reign. But here's where I want to expand our scope of God's kingdom just a little bit. Heaven is not the only place where God rules and reigns. You see, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we bow our knee to his lordship, friends, I want you to understand what you're doing. We're inviting into our lives God's rule and his reign. When we say, Jesus, I give my life to you, I commit my life to you, I confess my sins, repent of my ways, and I, I, I surrender to you, right? We, we just sang about it. I, we surrender all of our, ourselves to God. What we're saying is, God, I want you to rule in my life. I want you to reign in my life. God, I want you to be the ultimate authority in my life. I don't want authority in my life. I don't want to rule in my life. God, I want your ways, your plans, your will to be done, not my will. You see, what we're doing in that moment is we're inviting God's kingdom to invade our kingdom. What we're doing in that moment is saying, I don't want to be about building my kingdom. ACF, we are not here to build ACF's empire, ACF's kingdom. We are here to build God's kingdom. And friends, I hope. I hope every single one of you are here with that personal prayer that, God, I want you to, I want to, I want you to build your kingdom in my life. I, I don't want to build my kingdom. I don't want to chase after my kingdom. God, not my will be done, but yours. That's what we're talking about, about when we say the treasure of God's kingdom. He, here's, here's another way I like to put it. Okay. Um, I want to give you another kind of working definition. God's kingdom, yes, is uh, his rule and his reign. But I like to think about God's kingdom also in this way, that it is all that is right with God. Everything that is right with God is his kingdom. Everything that is right, all that is right with God, that means his goodness. That means his love, his compassion, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his wisdom, his holiness, his righteousness. I could go on and on and on. But friends, here's what I'm trying to say. Wherever God's rule and reign is, that's where you're going to see the character of God shining through the clearest. All that is right with God shines through where he rules and reigns. And so here's kind of another way to think about this. Wherever God's rule and reign is, if you don't see the, if you don't see the character of God, you've got to wonder, is this, is this really a taste of God's kingdom? Is this, is this a place where he rules and reigns? Folks, I want to go back to that, that piece of heaven. Again, what makes heaven heaven is not, again, not just uh, God's rule and reign over that place, over that area, the geographic area or whatever, however you want to view heaven. That's a whole other teaching in and of itself. 
But heaven is also the place where things like sin, darkness, hatred, evil, they have zero rule and reign. All that is right with God shines through in heaven because that is the place where he holds ultimate rule and reign. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the treasure of God's kingdom. And so when we say that ACF is here to build God's kingdom, here's what we're saying. We want to be a people that learns how to bring all that is right with God into all that is wrong with the world. There's a lot that's wrong with the world. Amen, church? I'm not, I'm, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to just, just read the headlines. There's a lot that is wrong with the world. And we as followers of Jesus who are called by his name to be the church, our primary call is to bring all that is right with God, his kingdom, building his kingdom, bring all that is right with God into all that is wrong with the world. To bring what's up there down here so that people without hope can find hope everlasting. So that people who are unloved can be transformed by the powerful, life-transforming love of their Father. So that people in despair, people in utter despair can find abounding joy. That's what happens when we as the church of God come together and build God's kingdom here. We want to bring all that is right with God his rule, his reign, into all that is wrong with the world. And folks, let me just say, it starts with you. It starts with you. Before we, we link arms and say, charge, we're going to go after all that is wrong with the world, then blah, 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 blah. Let me, let me assure you, Jesus is more concerned with taking all that is right with him and bringing it and invading it into all that is wrong with you, with your heart, with your mind. Friends, I, I, I mean, if I were to, plaster my secret thoughts on this screen, I would be ashamed. Right? I, I, am I the only one here? Am I the only, uh, you know, the, the person who is on the road to sanctification? We're all being sanctified, right? We're all trying to become more like Jesus. But you know, there are those days when we trip up and when we fall. In that moment, what we do is we go to God and we say, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In my life, in my heart, and in my mind, as it is in heaven. The treasure of God's kingdom. But see, Jesus, I said, he uncovers for us three specific treasures. That's the first one. And I want to jump to the second one here. And as, as he continues to go on in this passage, we discover the second treasure of the day, and that is the treasure of small beginnings. The treasure of small beginnings. Jesus proceeds to tell his listeners this little parable, this little tiny parable about a little tiny mustard seed, a little tiny grain. And he goes on and he begins to explain this parable and about this little mustard seed. And here's what he's essentially saying. When you are about my kingdom, you will learn to treasure the small beginnings. When you are about my kingdom, you're going to quickly learn to treasure the small beginnings. Now, friends, it doesn't, I don't think I need to preach on this a whole length of time, but you know this. We live in a culture where small things are insignificant things, where small things are worthless things, where small things are meaningless things or over, easily overlooked things, right? I mean, like when you, when you come across a penny on the ground, are you not more likely to step over that than if you were to find a $100 bill, right? Like, no, you, you better bend your back. I don't care how bad of a back you got. You see a $100 bill, you bend down, pick that bad mamma jamma up, put it in your pocket, and just go on your happy way, right? Like that's, but a penny, small things are insignificant things. 
In fact, we might have even heard the saying. We might have even uttered the saying ourselves. Bigger is what? Bigger is better. Bigger is better. I mean, that's a mantra of our day. In fact, I want to give you a couple of examples here. To, to explain to you what I'm talking about. I have a series of pictures here that I want to show you. Let's say you guys graduate out of this place. You find a job. You make a crap ton of money, right? Don't forget about ACF. Please just keep, keep blessing this ministry, your college church that poured into you, pour in back into us, all right? That's a little plug. Now, when you graduate from this place and you got all this money and you're about to buy a house, you got, you, you got options, right? And you come across a house like this. Let's, let's uh, throw that first uh, house up. You come across a house like this. You remember, you got all the money to buy a house. You come across a house like, okay, it's not bad. It's kind of it's kind of not the colors I would choose, you know, not the style, but, but it, it'll do, right? But remember, you got all the money to, to buy a home. And you have the option to buy this house, let's say. Go to the next slide. I mean, what, what, what person in their right mind would say, I mean, this house is so big, I can't even put both pictures up there. I mean, this house is massive. This house is massive. And you say, well, Dan, it's kind of a no-brainer. If I had all the money in the world to buy a home, it wouldn't be that little yellow shack. It would be this little McMansion here. I mean, not so little McMansion. This is, this is incredible. Now, let, let me give you another example. I think you'd appreciate this. After dinner, our family likes to go out and get a little ice cream. And so let's say we go out and we get a little ice cream, right? That's all right. It'll do. Maybe kids cone size like that. That works for my kids, like little five-year-old and 80-year-old. That, that's fine. But, but why settle for this when you could go to the creamery and get this? This is an actual shot of the creamery. Now, now I've seen bigger cones than this with my own eyes coming out of the creamery. You look at that and you're like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Like, hey, man, load it up. Give me another scoop. I don't care if it falls. I'll eat it off my hand. You know, just, just keep scooping it on. Keep loading it on. Why? Because bigger is what? Bigger is better, right? Bigger is better. Let me give you one, one last one here. Okay, so this is for all my dating couples who are looking to get engaged. Let's say, like, you guys are ready to take the next step, right? And, 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 and the boyfriend goes out, and he gets you a ring like this, right? That's nice. That's nice. Don't, don't dog on the size. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a nice. That, that is a college-funded ring right there. You know, like, that, 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 but, that, but that's, that's a nice ring. It's dainty. It's pretty. It's nice. I mean, you know, like, the size might not be there, but, you know, it, it's nice. But then you're, you're, you know, you being the, the, the girl that you are, you know, you're like, hey, babe, this is nice. I thank you, but it's kind of small, you know. It's, it's, it's kind of small. But, and then you, you being the good boyfriend that you are, you swallow your pride. You go out and you drop major bucks and you get something like this, right? <laughs> Why? Because bigger is better. Bigger is better, right? Wrong. That is not better, Okay. Fellas, let me clue you in. Do not get your lady a ring like this. She will slap you with it, okay? And so don't, don't, don't. This is, bigger is not always better. Friends, he, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus was trying to teach us something significant here about how things work in God's economy and in his kingdom. In God's kingdom and in his economy, bigger isn't always better. In fact, what you begin to discover is some of God's best stuff is done in his small stuff. Some of God's best stuff, the things that he works out in your lives, the things that shakes you up to your core, is often accomplished in the small stuff. It's not done in the big stuff. I love what, what Mother Teresa once said. She said, not all of us can do great things 
but we can do small things with great love. Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things, small things with great love. Friends, that's mustard seed talk right there. Mother Teresa is talking mustard seed here. You see, I think the problem with a lot of us is we all want to do great things. Can, can I just confess to you? I, I, I want to be great. I'm not going to, I think there's something in all of us, if we were to be really honest, there's something in us that wants to be great, that wants to be accomplished, that wants to be up on top, recognized by all, right? We want to be great. We want, we achieve this. And furthermore, our culture tells us, hey, you ought to strive for that. You should strive for greatness. You should look to make an impact, a difference in the world and all of these things. You should and you could. And so consequently, we convince ourselves that anything short of greatness is unacceptable. And so we're after this, this elusive thing called greatness and we're going after it. greatness because in our minds, again, we have convinced ourselves that bigger is what? Bigger is better. And believe it or not, the people of Jesus' time actually believed the same stuff. Okay, so let me, let me clue you in. During Jesus' time, the people during this time believed that the kingdom of God would be restored in this marvelous, magnificent way. That the kingdom of God would be, would be restored to the nation of Israel in these big, extravagant ways where a king, a mighty, noble king, comes riding in in grand horses and chariots. And he comes in and he overthrows the Roman government and he establishes, raises up the Jewish people, the Israel nation, as God's holy, chosen people, as a dominant, militant, powerful force to be reckoned with. This is how the people thought that the kingdom of God, how God would work out his rule and reign in the world. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's like, guys, guys, no, I think you got the wrong idea. When you think about my kingdom, God's kingdom, unfolding and manifesting here on earth, I want you to think about, um, let's see, a mustard seed. To which people have had to been like, no. No, 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 no. We're expecting a king, a militant, powerful king to come and raise our nation up to, to, to remove us out of Roman uh, uh, rule and to raise us up as a powerful, dominant nation to be reckoned with. Jesus is like, no, no, no. You're not understanding. I want you to think about a mustard seed. A mustard seed? You mean that tiny, small, insignificant grain? That's how you want us to think of God's kingdom? And Jesus is like, yes, exactly. That tiny, small, seemingly insignificant seed is what I am going to do when God's kingdom comes. When you give it time, that seed will do what that seed does. It will grow into a tree where birds will make its nest in. Church, can I just, can I just fill you in on something? That's how God works in our lives oftentimes. Through a tiny little seed. Through a tiny little seed. He doesn't show up in grand gestures. He doesn't show up with light works and fireworks and sky riders like, hey, I'm moving in your life. Get ready. Like, I'm going to call, you know, like God doesn't show up in that way. In fact, do you remember how God showed up to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19? God wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the earthquake. He was in the stillness. The still quiet, seemingly insignificant, almost easily overlooked voice of God. He was in the quiet. 
Listen, I know, I know we all want God to show up in our lives in big ways. Every time we open up the Bible, we're like, all right, God, show up in big ways. Every time we go to prayer, God, show up in big ways. When we come to church, God, show up in big ways. And friends, when he does that, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't come expecting. We should come expecting, but not expecting to see just how God shows up. It's just that we come expecting that he shows up. There's a big difference. You're not writing the script for how God shows up in your life. You're just coming expecting for him to show up. How he shows up in your life is entirely up to him. That is in his hands. And so when you come, you might only think that you might walk away from church today. You didn't get any big revelation. You didn't get any new information, any life-shaking, altering, rock, rocking your world kind of thing. The only thing you might walk away with is God giving you a simple reminder. Hey, don't you forget, I'm a faithful God. I know you don't sense that. I know you don't feel that. I know you don't believe that. But I want to remind you who I am. I'm a faithful God. I'm with you. I have not forsaken you or left you. I want you to remember that. You know why sometimes he only gives us small reminders along the way, why he doesn't show up in grand gestures or anything like that? Two reasons. One, he's in the process of growing and stretching our faith. What kind of faith would there be if God showed up in Skywriters every time? I'm God. This is what I want you to do. This is what I'm saying to you. That ain't faith. Give me faith to trust what you say. And sometimes all he will say is, hey, buddy, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm here. The second thing that that does is that deposit that God puts in you, he's putting it in there because he knows that somewhere down the road you're going to need to recall that. You might not need that right now in this season of your life, but God knows that there's going to come a point in time where you're going to need to go back to that reminder, that small mustard seed reminder that says, ah, oh, yes, that's right, God is faithful, and I believe it, because that seed, that mustard seed has planted deep into my life, and now it's starting to manifest in the time that I need it the most. God is faithful. God is faithful. You see, that's the treasure of small beginnings. The Bible tells us in Zechariah, don't despise small beginnings. Don't despise that stuff because that's where God is. Not in the grand gestures, but he's in the small stuff. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. Keep eyes wide open. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you illumination to see those moments. Let me wrap it up here and let me jump to the third uh, treasure here. Talked about the treasure of God's kingdom, the treasure of small beginnings, and here's the third treasure. It is the treasure of unexpected means. Unexpected means, not memes means. Of all the things, listen, of all the things that Jesus could have used to describe the kingdom of God, why use leaven? Why use yeast, right? We had a, uh, a bunch of our freshmen over to our house for dinner the other night, and we were talking about like our favorite smells, and one of them were like, I love the smell of yeast. And we we're like, what? That's so gross, dude. Like, why? You know, um, you know but, but Jesus, why, why is he using leaven? I, I mean, you got to remember, he's talking to a largely Jewish crowd here, right? And, and, and a good Jewish person would know that you don't, you don't use leaven in your cooking. You don't use yeast in your cooking. All of their Passover meats was, was served with unleavened bread. Unleavened. Why? Because it was seen as, as, as sinful. It was seen as unholy, unrighteous. It was, it was seen as unclean. This fermentation, the fermentation process of leaven and all, using leaven and yeast. They, see, the Jewish people 
saw this as, as a negative aspect. And so why use something so negative to talk about something so positive like God's kingdom? Why is Jesus using leaven? You see, this is what makes Jesus such a master storyteller. This is why Jesus taught in this way. You see, Jesus was very intentional about using leaven as the word picture here because I think oftentimes God will use unexpected means to work in our lives. Things that we deem as negative, things like struggles, hardships, trials, temptation, heartbreak, disappointment, failures. I mean, how many of us like failures? No, right? Like, we try to stay far away from that because that is a negative. No, we don't want failure. We don't want disappointment. We don't want heartache. But oftentimes, God will use things that we deem as negative to bring about a positive work in our lives. Even sin. Can I just say there are some of us in here that are wrestling with different kinds of sins, and we feel like, man, we can't come to God with this. Friends, it could be that that sin in your life is the very thing that God wants to use in your life. The Bible tells us that God works the good for his people. He finds a way to turn what, what was meant for evil and bring about for his good. It could be that the thing that you are struggling with the most, it could be that God is wanting to use that very thing to bring about a good, positive work in your life. Um, I don't know how many of you know the name uh, Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. Awesome name, right? And you should name your kid that, Horatio, like Horatio Spafford, you know. And, and he, if you don't know this name, uh, he was a successful lawyer uh, back in the mid-1800s, and he was, uh, he was a Chicago native, and he lived in Chicago, and he was a wealthy lawyer. He did well for himself, so much so that he had all these different investment properties all over the city of Chicago, his career was going well, and all things were going well. His personal life was going well. He had a wife and five kids. All was well until his youngest son came down with a mysterious illness. He started deteriorating rather quickly, and he ended up dying due to scarlet fever. In that grieving process, uh, and friends, I, I don't know if you've walked alongside anyone who has lost a child. It is, it's, it's like no other pain. It really is. It's like no other pain. In this grieving time, uh, the, the great Chicago fire of 1871 took over. And it, it just consumed everything. It consumed and destroyed all of Horatio's investment properties and, and destroyed. Instantly, he lost everything. He lost everything. Uh, a few years later, he decides that, you know what, um, it, it's time that we just, we need to, as a family, just, just go away for a little while. And so... Uh, Horatio boards his family, his wife and four daughters, on, on a ship to go to England uh, to, to uh, tag along with D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist during that time. He was going around and evangelizing in different parts of England. And so he, Horatio boards his family on the ship and, and sends them off. A few days pass, and Horatio receives a telegram from his wife that says, Saved alone, what shall I do? You see, along the journey on that path, the ship that Horatio and the daughters were on ended up hitting another iron, iron tanker, a, a, a vessel, and, and it, the, the whole thing just shattered into a million pieces, and within 12 minutes, the boat sank to the bottom of the ocean, taking with it its 226 passengers, four of which were Horatio's daughters. As if things couldn't get worse, right? As if things couldn't get worse. Horatio jumps on, on, on a boat, and he begins to cross over to meet his wife in England. 
And the captain gets on the loudspeaker and says, hey, this is, this is where that ship sank. This is where the, all those lives were taken and all these things. And on that ship, on that naval vessel, by the way, that, that, that boat crash was uh, documented to be the worst boat crash in the history of naval history uh, up until the Titanic. Now, as, as that boat was hovering over the graveyard of his four daughters, he begins to put pen to paper, and he writes these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, God, you've taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. God, you have taught me to say, those little mustard seeds, that little yeast that you planted in my, soul, in my soul, God, you have taught me through these little things. And because of those small little things that you have sowed into me, that you have planted and deposited into my soul, I am able to come to this place. And in the midst of great tragedy and the things that I would deem as negative, God, you are able to bring about some positive work in my life. Now, friends, I'm not saying we're a bunch of Horatio Spaffords here. I know that none of us have lost kids. None of us have lost investment properties or anything like that. But I do know that you've got struggles. You've got hardships. You've got things that you're wrestling through. You've got things, doubts, questions, interpersonal relationships in your life, and, and, and big things that you are wrestling with. Friends, could it be that God is wanting to use those things to do a deeply transformative work in your life? You see, that's the treasure of unexpected means. God uses unexpected means to bring about a good, positive work in our lives.